0: It is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. This is something uh, that's true with something as insignificant as uh, tofu stir fry. Uh, this week, my wife, Misty, made an impressive power supermom move on our kids, which is she made tofu stir fry and said, Listen, that's dinner, and you're going to eat it, or you're not eating anything. Um, And so she made it, we put it on the plates, and my son Micah asked the question, is there peanut butter in this? Because it smelled like peanut butter, and there was peanut butter in it, and uh, Micah does not like peanut butter. And so he's asked a question now, is there peanut butter in this? Which to tell a child there is something they do not like in the dinner in front of them is a dangerous moment. It is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. So I just pulled a Jesus on him. And I answered his question with a question, which I just asked, well, does it look like there is peanut butter in that? He said no, and he ate it and liked it. So (laughs) it works. So even something as small as tofu stir fry, it is difficult and it is dangerous to tell the truth. But that's also true of things that are where the stakes are much higher. Uh, the, one of the, the best movies I've seen in the past several years, maybe the best movie I've ever seen, is uh, Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. The movie tells the story of Franz Jaggerstadter, which if you're Austrian, do not check that pronunciation. Uh, but it, it's a, he was an obscure farmer in an obscure Austrian town that had to make a decision. Do I swear an oath swearing my support to Adolf Hitler? everyone else in his village signed it. His priest encouraged him to sign it. And as he continued to wrestle with whether or not he should sign that oath, his village turned against him, against his family, against his wife. As he's facing imprisonment, trial, and most likely death, everyone's turning against him, but he was a Christian. And he rightly believed that as a Christian, he could not put his name and signature on an oath Supporting a man he thought to be wicked and evil. And so he had a choice. Lie, sign the oath, meaningless piece of paper, and survive. Or refuse to sign it and face most likely his own death. It is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. And in Revelation 11, the primary point of this passage is, listen, there's a lot there. But the primary point of Revelation 11 is that the church's primary role in the world is to tell the truth. We are to tell the truth. That's why we exist. And so that raises some questions. Well, what is the truth that we're supposed to tell? Why do we often not tell it? And how can we? So what is it? Uh, why we avoid it, why we don't tell it, and how we can. So first, what, what is the truth? And, and listen, right now we're in the meat of the book of Revelation, uh, the point where your eyes are most likely to glaze over, become incredibly confused, and if we were on a plane at this point, you'd be looking for a parachute to jump out. Or you might even say, you know, I don't even care if there's not a parachute, I'm jumping anyway. right? This is the point where a lot of people begin to bail. And so I just want to briefly walk through how, where we're at, how we got there, to remind us that this, actually this is really important and really interesting if we don't lose track of where we're at. So Revelation 1 begins by telling us, listen, this is a book that reveals to us Jesus Christ as he is right now. This isn't pale uh, Galilean peasant Jesus. This is Jesus reigning from the throne room of God, Jesus. That's what's being revealed to us. Then Revelation 2 and 3 is the message to the seven churches, where Jesus' primary message to the seven churches was, you are to not compromise witness to my name, and you're going to suffer because of your faithful witness. Revelation four and five then pales, uh, veils back, or pulls back the veil of the throne room of God, where we see that what the reason why Jesus is both reigning now from history and why He's worthy to begin the end times, to begin the process of His return, is because He is the Lamb and the Lion. Right? He was the Lamb that was slain. He He shed His blood for the world to ransom a people for himself. And that made him worthy to open the scrolls, to begin the end times of history. Then last week we looked, there were seven seals that were opened that began, began to detail the end of the world. Then in Revelation 9 through 11, there are seven trumpets, which I'm not really going to deal with tonight. If you want to know about those, come on Wednesday night. But, but what you have here now is, is right before the seventh trumpet. There's this little interlude in Revelation 11, which also happened with the seven seals which is what I preached on last week. There's this interlude where we see God's people pleading with God to bring about the end of history because the church is suffering, and God says, not yet. You must wait. There's the silence before heaven. That was last week. And now, between trumpet six and trumpet seven, there's another interlude, and we get this story about two witnesses between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. It's a story. And so the question becomes, okay, what is the storytelling and more, most importantly, who are these two witnesses? Like, this is the mo- like, whoever these witnesses are, tell us how to understand this chapter, what Joseph just read for us, which was some intense stuff. Now, if you've read uh, or you're familiar with the movies Left Behind, which were, were really popular in culture, that, that story interprets the two witnesses as two literal people, two witnesses on the earth at the end of the world, who in particular will have pretty impressive powers where if someone opposes them, they will breathe out fire from their mouth like divine pyrotechnic flamethrowers and will kill anyone who opposes them. Now listen, typically I'd be very pro-divine pyrotechnics of any kind. I don't think that's the best reading of this verse. Um, And the reason is we're actually told how to interpret this verse. That's the verse 4, right? We get two witnesses. Uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they're on the earth. Who are these witnesses? And then in verse 4, we're actually, we're told who they are. The two, These are the two witnesses, verse 4, or these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, we're given three clues to who they are, which is the two olive trees, two lampstands who stand before the earth. All three clue us into who this is. I'm just going to focus on one. The two, they're, they're called lampstands. And we are told explicitly in Revelation 1 that lampstands are the churches. Lampstands are the church. So these two witnesses are a, a parable about the church. The two witnesses are a reference not to two human beings at the end of history, I don't think, but to the church. So then we're asking, okay, well, why two witnesses? I think there's actually a lot of of reasons to think, uh, a lot of reasons to meditate on that fact, which again, Revelation is meditation literature, and the more you dwell on it, the more these symbols, I think, bring out meaning. But two reasons quick why I think there's two witnesses. First, remember in Revelation 2 and 3, there were two churches that were faithful in their witness to Jesus. And so I think it's a callback to those two churches. Be like those two churches. But more importantly, the reason there's two witnesses is in the, in the Hebrew Bible, to establish the truth of a testimony, you needed two witnesses. And if you were to read uh, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you would find language uh, that Revelation 11 mirrors, which is that these two witnesses are, are bearing witness to the truth of the kingdom of God. And so this is how Richard Bauckham s- summarizes what's going on here, as well as what's going to go on through the rest of Revelation. He writes... The world is a kind of courtroom in which the issue of who is the true God is being decided. In this judicial contest, Jesus and his followers bear witness to the truth. At the conclusion of the contest, their witness is seen to be true and becomes evidence on which judgment is passed against those who have refused to accept So in other words, what he's saying is as we Christians bear witness to the truth, we become the basis on which at the end time of history, people who are judged are judged because they did not receive the witness of the church. We bore witness to the truth and it was not received. So that's what's going on. Revelation 11, I think, and again, Christians interpret this in, in many different ways, but my best understanding of this is Revelation is a parable about the church's witness to the world from the, from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to his final return. We are his witnesses. So what is the truth? That, that raises the question. And, and in many ways, that, that leads us into next week's sermon. Because next week's sermon gets into the fact that this, this sort of divine... Uh, and, and satanic war of deception and lies and falsehood that's playing itself out on the earth. So in many ways, what the truth is is gonna be next week's sermon. But I, to basically say where we're going next week, the truth is verse 15, the last verse Joseph read for us. The truth we are to announce is the seventh trumpet, which is the end, that, that's the final judgment. The end times of all history is, is the seventh trumpet. The good news, the truth we have is verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become or will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, in essence, the church tells the truth of the kingdom of God in two ways. First, to individuals. We call every person to personal faith in Jesus Christ. We call them to repent of their sins, to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to become followers of Jesus. We call them to stop living for themselves and to call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. And the most powerful practice we have as a church that that announces that is the act of baptism, where we say, dunk me under the water. I don't want to run my life, right? I want to die to myself. I want to repent of my sins. I want to be washed clean. And I want to be raised to new life where Christ is the center, brand new. We are to call people to that as a church. And listen, we, we are in a season where we would encourage you, if you've not made that intentional decision where you said, I repent of my sin and receive Christ alone as my Savior, and then to have acted that out in baptism, if, none of the, if you haven't done all three of those things, we'd invite you to that. That's why we exist as a church, to call you into faith in Jesus. So have you done that? I mean, that's first, that's our witness. But it's not, just, it's not just a personal, we all get our own, like, beam me up Scotty tubes to heaven one day by our own personal faith in Jesus. We also, secondly, the church announces the truth to the kingdoms of this world. Right? It, it's not just individuals get to go to heaven one day. No, 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 no. The kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So we don't just call people to personal faith and and repentance. We also announce to the kingdoms of this world, your way will be out one day. The kingdom of Christ is coming for you. Yield, repent, (laughs) or be overthrown. That there's a new way of power. There's a new value to this world. There's new ethics, new practices. To the kingdoms of this world, we say, the way you do things stands condemned. And the kingdom of Christ will replace you. Right? So we say two things. That's, there's two witnesses to the truth the church gives. To individuals, to call into personal faith and repentance. And to the social systems and structures and political kingdoms of the world, that we say, your values are not the values and way of Christ. And those values, those systems... Those powers, those kingdoms stand condemned because they do not bring justice. They do not bring peace. They do not bring economic prosperity for all. And the kingdom of Christ one day will. So that, that's the truth we, we announce. So to, to go back to where we started. Okay, so how then, if that's the good truth we have to acknowledge, the salvation of this world through Christ, why was Franz Jagerstatter the only Christian ...in his village who told the truth about Hitler. Why at key moments in history has the church failed to tell the truth... ...and at times not even failed to tell the truth, but actually embrace a lie? So point two, why do we abandon our call to be witnesses to the kingdom of God... ...and instead embrace a lie? Why don't we tell the truth? And there's three three reasons I want to dig. A couple out of this text and then one just in my own personal meditation and reflection... Uh, three reasons why we avoid the truth. First, and most importantly, we avoid the truth to avoid suffering. Right? It's both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. Whether you have to tell your kid you got to eat some peanut butter, or you are trying to bear witness to the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that is not interested in the kingdom of God. And here's the promise of Revelation 11, is that if you bear witness to the truth of the kingdom of God, you will suffer for it. Revelation 11 depicts a world that does not want to hear the truth of the church's witness. And all over the world right now, that is true. The church's witness is opposed with violence, with condescension, with communal exile, all sorts of different ways. And so across our five campuses, our five primary global partners, the five parts of the world we primarily work as a church at Christ Community, is China, that's the partner we typically, we we work with most, China, Iran... Nigeria, Kenya, Western Africa, Germany, and Rwanda. Now, in five of those places, three or three of those five places, Christian Witness is currently opposed with violence and state suppression. China, Iran, and Western Africa. The Christian Witness is opposed with Witness. In the other two places we work, Rwanda and Germany, the legacy of Christian compromise, to state powers and taking up and the, the church actually becoming an act of oppressor with the state has a, a, an awful history and the church's witness has been greatly damaged because of it. That in both cases you have either the church is telling the truth and suffering for it or the church is dealing with the history of failing to tell the truth and people losing faith in Christ and the church because it did not bear witness or tell the truth. What Revelation 11 is saying is if you are going to take up the name of Jesus and speak the truth, you have to expect violent opposition. And maybe in our own day, we're not going to experience violence, but, but you're going to experience trial, suffering, pushback, if you tell the truth about Jesus. So Revelation 11, right? It it starts with, uh, and I'll get into some of these images in a second. But first, the temple is to be measured perfectly. I'll I'll talk about that in a second. But then uh, John, in this vision, is told not to measure outside the temple. And the reason he's told not to measure the the court outside the temple, verse 2, leave that out, for that's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now again, Christians take this in a lot of different ways, but, but my way of understanding this is first, the holy city is an image for the church. We're the people of God. And the nations will trample on the holy city. And even if that's not uh, enough for you, the, the witnesses who prophesy for, for 1,260 days, they're clothed in sackcloth, which is, uh, which is the dress of mourning. It's the dress of sadness. And the reason for that is because the witness the world gives to the church Results not in universal acceptance, but in universal rejection and suffering. And so the question I want us all to meditate on this morning is, what have I suffered for telling the truth about Jesus? Because I think this is true whether you're a high school student who maybe you just, you let someone sit at your lunch table who no one else would, because that's going to bear witness to the, to the inclusion and the love the outcast Christ has in his kingdom. And just bringing someone to your, your table can invite opposition and mockery and being in, in, in that level of suffering. Or to witness to the truth of the kingdom of God in many cases in our workplaces now puts us at odds with uh, the human resources department or the common uh, assumptions of our own cultural day. This is, this, listen, what have, what have we suffered to tell the truth about Jesus? So That's first Revelation 11 just makes it very clear listen if you tell the truth about Jesus there will be suffering for it But secondly and this is more out of my own reflection we avoid the truth because we have not been shaped by it At the most powerful moment in the movie A Hidden Life is the scenes where Franz walks past someone who's painting their local church And the conversation begins with the painter telling Franz that that he should just sign the loyalty oath just just dude you're just give it up, man. Just give in. It's not a big deal. You have a duty to your fatherland to, to sign the oath. But then he's, then the painter, even though he tells Franz to basically cave to his Christian convictions, give in, sign, as he's painting, he says this, which is just this haunting statement, as the painter almost laments his own compromise to his, to his Christian witness. He writes, as he's painting, I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. We love him. That's enough. Someday I'll paint a true Christ. Now, how many of us just want a comfortable Christ that does not confront this world and its and its its problems, its sin, its injustices, that doesn't confront us? And listen, let me just say, like pastors, we've. We've probably been the worst at just presenting church as the comfortable Christ ready to come and meet all your needs and make your life easier and give you whatever you want and, 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 and make you more comfortable. And yet, the message and mission of Revelation 11 is that Christ is someone who, when you introduce him into your life, has a truth that creates a lot of conflict in the world around you. And I think too often it's easy for me to have a Christ that is comfortable and does not confront what is wrong or what is not true in the world around me? Do we want just a comfortable Christ or do we want the true Christ? And then third and finally, we avoid the truth when we make ourselves the truth. Now one of the things that makes me nervous about preaching this sermon is, is that it communicates something that's true about the church. That so we're to tell the truth to the world and the world's not going to like it. But that's something that has been excessively abused by Christians um, in our own context and around the world. Typically Christians that I've encountered who say, man, we just got to tell the truth and everyone else got to deal with it. Typically, those Christians don't have a long legacy of people coming to faith in Christ. Typically, they have a long legacy of people they have hurt and harms and division that they've caused because the truth is not Jesus. It's them. They're the truth. And so there's a tension here between, yes, as a church, we have a truth-bearing witness to give to the world and the reality that people who say things like that are often the least compelling people to spend time with. Hey, man, it's just the truth. It's not my problem. You deal with it, right? And so how do we navigate that tension of of speaking the truth, of not backing away from speaking the truth, which will necessarily lead to suffering, but not suffering because we're just jerks. Suffering actually because we're bearing witness to the truth of the kingdom of God. So back to where we started. Why was Franz Jagerstatter the only Christian in his village who told the truth about Hitler? Well, it's because we want to avoid suffering. It's because we haven't painted or embraced the true Christ in in our own life. Or three, it's because we've made ourselves the true. So then, okay, how do we do this right? How can we teach or or, or speak the truth in a way that embodies what Revelation 11 calls us um, to be? And I want to go to the the opening images of Revelation 11. uh, Where we're told that John, uh, who sees this vision, he's given a measuring rod like a staff and is told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So John's given this image to go and measure the temple. Now, the first question is, okay, well, what, is he, what is he measuring? What's the temple? Is it like the physical structure in Jerusalem, which most likely when John wrote this had already been destroyed? What's he measuring? And here, like the image of the temple of God in the New Testament is no longer a building. It is, it is a people. It is a community. Right? That's why even though we as a church didn't have a building for five years of our existence, we were still a temple. We are the temple of God. And so when John is told to measure the temple, we're immediate, those who have read the New Testament or will read through all of Revelation will begin to, to meditate on the fact that the church or the temple is the people of God. It's a people, not a, a place necessarily. And then the question becomes, well, why is he measuring the temple? Well, here's the Like If I, am to, if I build something, uh, which is very rare and almost exclusively done in failure anytime I build anything, uh, the reason why I fail often is because measuring is very important. And when you measure something, you're making sure that this will be sturdy. This will be well-crafted. This will have the right angles. This will be um, screwed into the right places so that everything doesn't fall apart um, at the end. So you measure something to make it strong, well-crafted, sturdy, secure. And that's why John is measuring the temple, because God is saying, I want, I'm going to measure my church because it is, it is going to be strong, it is going to last, it is going to withstand the onslaught of attack and abuse the world is going to send against it as it bears witness to the truth. My temple will be protected. My temple will, will, will withstand the opposition it is going to face. And then, of course, John is told, do not measure the outside of the temple because that is, that is given over to the world who is going to host, uh, hostily oppose the church. And this is metaphorical language all to describe both the unshakable nature of the people of God and the church and its witness to bear, and also the unshakable nature of the opposition we will face ongoing as Christians bearing witness to the truth. Now, as, as, you, and I, uh, as you and I think about our own cultural context, how do you and I create a community that embraces this reality that, of a strong-certed community that can, that can withstand uh, opposition, that will still tell the truth, even when it means suffering, even when it means um, the world's opposition. And I want to give three thoughts to that as we close. What, what we need to think about as a community. The First, we need to embrace the community of the church, the place of God's presence. The temple metaphor is not just about a, a people, but it's about the fact that as we gather, we, we enter into the presence of God together. Too much of our Christian experience, I think, often is my own individual experience with God. Yet, And listen, that is absolutely affirmed in the New Testament. But what is more often affirmed is seeking the presence of God in community. And here's the deal. Like, fear and anxiety rises in us when we stop seeking the presence of God, when our calendar is too full for Christian worship. When our Christian life is not marked by seeking God in prayer, when Christian community is such a small part of our life rhythms, is it any wonder that now, at a time of unrest and great pressure on the church, the church is just one more place of anxiety and fear in our broader culture? That we need to seek his presence together in prayer to embody what Eugene Peterson writes when he says, When conflicts rage between good and evil, Prayers went up from the devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were raged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Why didn't they cut and run? They prayed. I think the church is having a mental breakdown right now. And it's because we're not seeking the God seeking God in community together in prayer. That people rooted in the presence of God are not blown around by the fears, the winds, the pressures of, of, of culture. Because we, we were promised in Revelation 11, all those things are going to violently oppose the church. We're promised that. We can't vote our way out of that. We can't argue our way out of it. That is what we are promised. And so the answer then is to enter into the presence of God as the people of God and to seek his presence together. And what that means for our community, I, I think a couple things, and these are not solid answers. These are more my own reflections as I think about us moving forward as a church. One is we need to more thoroughly embrace the role of prayer, to seek God's presence, to have the courage and wisdom, to speak the truth, all of God's truth, to a culture who does not want to hear. And then secondly, it's, uh, we need stronger community. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, there's a new book out I'd, I'd recommend to you called um, Live Not by Lies uh, by Roger Ayer. And in it, he, he's sort of basically saying he, what he sees in the, the West is, is increasing opposition to Christian witness, which I think is true. Um, and he details at the beginning of the book how a Jesuit priest named Father Kolakovich saw communism making its way into Czechoslovakia and his answer the, his answer was basically to begin to fortify communities to have them praying together studying the scriptures together being in community together um, to deepen their own faith in order to prepare themselves for when opposition became stronger against them and the result was his commu- the communities he created became the force by which one day would overthrow the state violence and re- religious oppression that was true of communism in the West. That, listen, to be blunt, if we are going to be a community that tells the truth in a culture that increasingly is hostile to Christianity, you're not going to do that with an hour in church a week. It's just not. That, listen, the, the assaults of, of deformation that we walk into each week that want to move us away from the way of Jesus are way stronger than what, I, what we're going to do in this hour together. There's, there's no chance of being formed more into the way of Jesus and into the way of truth. Um, if, if your Christian life is essentially an hour or two a week, So that's first. We're going to have to, if we are going to tell the truth, um, we need to embrace the community of the church, the place of God's presence. Uh, Secondly, um, we need to embrace our role as witnesses. Uh, We are not the judge. I am not the truth. And I do not even have the truth. I know, we know the truth. Who is a person whose name is Jesus? And it means the best witnesses, there are times when the best thing they do is be quiet. That I love what Eugene Peterson says about Christian witness. Uh, witness, apparently, does not mean telling everything we see and hear breathlessly and indiscriminately. Reticence is as much a part of witness as and I, as I thought about witness this week, the only witness that could come to mind, uh, and listen, this is going to date myself, uh, is, do you guys remember Cato Kalin from the O.J. Simpson trial? It was just, like, so clear that he was using that event as a platform to launch his acting career, uh, which made him not a very serious person, in the midst of actually what was a very serious, uh, a serious crime that, that happened. And the result was, even though he was a key witness, that actually uh, would have led probably to conviction— he told a lot more than what he needed to, to tell, which took the, uh, the focus off the truth and on, more onto himself. And I see that in Christians often, as we, we leave an experience of witnessing and people are more clear about who we are and what we think than who Jesus is and what he's done. And the lesson I'm learning right now is there are moments when the most powerful witness to the kingdom of God is to be quiet. And the question becomes, where, where is my burden? In witnessing? Is it to win? Is it to prove myself, to be right, to look smart? Those are the wrong burdens. And the burden we're to have is to be Revelation 13, or verse 13, which is the most shocking verse um, in uh, the passage where we read. Uh, this, is the, so I, this is sort of uh, not quite the end of all history, um, but verse 13. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There's lots of, you know, what does this mean? Um, Initially, you read that and think, man, God's judgment sounds awful. He shakes an earthquake and a bunch of people die. Um, Listen, it is awful. But we should ask the question, why did 7,000 people die? What a strange number. 7,000 people. And there's a reason why uh, we're told 7,000 people die. That's a reference back to the prophet Elijah. And the prophet Elijah, who was a a prophet, a witness, who bore witness to the truth, and no one listened to him, and he suffered for it uh, mightily at the hands of the state power of his own day, which was supposed to be faithful to um, God's people. But in the midst of all that suffering, God looked at Elijah and said, listen, uh, basically no one's going to listen to you, no one's going to take you seriously, no one's going to like you, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to preserve a remnant of 7,000 people for you, 7,000 people who will— Um, who will stay faithful to the ways of God in the midst of all of this compromise. 7,000 people will be saved, in other words. So here, instead of God saying 7,000 people are saved, it's actually reversed. Instead of only 7,000 people being saved, only 7,000 people die in judgment. Because, as we're told, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of God. Listen, I can't go into all the images of Revelation 11. You've got lots of questions, and I'm sorry. But here's here's the parable. The parable is the church is to bear witness to the name of Jesus. They're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. We're essentially going to look uh, dead on arrival on this. And then when all hope looks lost, God is going to breathe life back into his church. And as we preach the gospel, millions, hundreds maybe of millions, will convert into the way of Jesus. That our burden, why we speak the truth to this world, is they will give glory to the God of heaven. Not so that we will secure our place in culture. Not so that we will look right. Not so that we will vindicate ourselves in a broader world that does not like us. No, our burden is for the jury to see the truth, right? (laughs) For the world to look at the beauty of Jesus. And I wonder, because the the message of Revelation 11 is that the church is so committed to the witness of Jesus, willing to suffer and even die for it. I wonder how many people in the United States of America would would look at the church and think to themselves, they so want me to embrace the way of Jesus, they would die for me. They are are so committed to me becoming a Christian, they would suffer to do it. Or how many of us, how many of, of, of our broader culture see the church and they think we think they are our enemies to crush? step on, our own way to power. And that leads me to my my last reflection, which is, I think, really the heart of Revelation 11, which is that we embrace the path of truth-telling that Jesus embraced. Uh, So Franz Jagerstatter, he was arrested, he was tried, and he was eventually facing a certain execution um, within Nazi Germany. And in the midst of that, a Nazi German uh, judge pulled him aside and said this to him, Do you imagine that anything you do will change the course of this war? That anyone outside this court will ever hear of you? No one will be changed. The world will go on as before, and you'll vanish. Which is what happens. The Nazis beheaded Franz. And his small act of telling the truth didn't change his village. His village continued to be supporters of the Nazis. It meant he died alone. But, Revelation 11 would say, his witness was not meaningless. Revelation makes that clear, that at the end of the age, when it looks like the church's witness to the world has lost, right? The two witnesses are lying dead in the street. uh, God will breathe life into his church and bring the nations back to himself. Right? After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered into them. And they, st- they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Okay, this is a parable, a metaphor. That when we look like it, when we look, all hope is lost, I should give up, no point. John says, don't. That your ongoing faithful witness to the way of Jesus will one day lead to the salvation of the nations. That, In other words, what convinces the world of the truth of our witness, according to Revelation 11, is not our great church programs not our slick pastors with their great sermons and podcasts, not our buildings, not our, our compelling uh, uh, you know, community that we can create for other people. What converts the nations to the way of Jesus is our, willing to, our willingness to suffer and die for them. Which, of course, is the path of Jesus. I mean, Pilate looked at Jesus and said, listen, you don't have to die, what a waste. You've got good followers, you clearly are a decent person, you haven't done much wrong. Your death will be meaningless. Just come on, let's, just, let's figure out a way forward. After all, thousands of people were crucified by Rome. Thousands of people put on crosses to die meaningless deaths so that Pilate and Rome and the state power of that day, who got very good at this, of killing people in such meaningless ways to make sure that their meaningless death would mean that no one else would take up the rebellion that they had started. But God took Jesus' witness, his faithful suffering witness, and bought my salvation with it and by your salvation with it. Such that if we approach him in faith, not by our own works, we receive salvation through his faithful witness. And what Revelation tells us is that the path of the salvation of the nations is not Christians getting a seat at the place of power, not having elections go our way, not being adored by the world because of our brilliance. The nations come to see the beauty of the kingdom of God when we take up the path of Jesus and we suffer for them. That's how it happens. It is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. So will we? Let's pray. Fathers, I think about your own testimony to me, your own faithful witness to me. That first century in Palestine, you died what every onlooker would have named as a meaningless death at the hands of Rome on a cross. Purchase to our salvation. God, what a powerful witness. And we as a church, we have a burden to see this world come to faith in the name of Jesus as well. And we try so many different ways of doing that. So I pray you'd help us and embody us and empower us to tell the truth and to pay whatever cost is necessary. To help the nations come and see the truth and beauty of the kingdom of God and who Jesus is we pray and we ask all this in Jesus' name.